Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Hope you recognize that you are as well. Hope this finds you and yours doing exceedingly well, even if the rains are about to come or maybe they're already where you are. I'm dealing with a fly. There was a fly in another room where I was preparing for the show for the better part of the last three hours, and I think it has migrated into this studio and followed me. We thought we had gotten rid of it and put it into a different part of the building, but this thing apparently is out for, I don't know, it's trying to drive me insane. Anyway, I'm just going to read this directly. Near our booth. A Sports Center segment about the New York Giants catches Mayfield's eye. Quote, I cannot believe the Giants took Daniel Jones. Mayfield says about New York's much maligned draft day decision to spend the sixth pick on the quarterback from Duke, whose college record was a measly 17 and 19. Blows my mind. I tell Mayfield that I'm mystified that so many supposedly expert quarterback scouts seem unable to predict what makes a good NFL quarterback. Some people overthink it, Mayfield says. That's where people go wrong. They forget you've got to win. It's not hard to sense that Mayfield is reflecting on his own history now. Despite compiling a 39-9 record in college, he faced a chorus of criticism before the draft. Those past slights are buried in a shallow grave. A Browns teammate, Joel Batonio, tells me that Mayfield plays with the mentality of proving everybody who's ever said something negative about him wrong. To Mayfield, the characteristics of a great quarterback are simple. Quote, either you have a history of winning and being that guy for your team, or you don't. Mayfield, of course, has always been that guy. Winning might be new for Cleveland, but it's not for Mayfield, whose stories have to this point all involved him breathing his faith and a bit of that swaggering self-belief into the people close enough to feel it. That is from a GQ profile, wide-ranging interview with Baker Mayfield, by Clay Skipper, whose name I had never heard until today. Doesn't mean he hasn't done fine work, just means he's not been on my particular radar. But the money quote, what everybody is looking at and what blew up social media is what he said about Daniel Jones, the sixth pick in this year's NFL draft, the quarterback out of Duke. I cannot believe the Giants took Daniel Jones. Blows my mind. Some people overthink it. That's where people go wrong. They forget you've got to win. Now, this is sort of, for me to talk about this, this is sort of the pot calling the kettle black here because I'm one of the 99% of the media that also thought the Daniel Jones pick was insane. I was sitting there next to Mickey Ryan, who you just spent the last four hours, at least if you're intelligent enough to have been listening to all 3HL today, as you should have. Mickey Ryan was sitting right next to me, and we heard the chorus in that room while we were sitting there waiting for Kyler Murray's interview and Joey Bosa's interview and all of that in the press conference room. And it was just an exasperated, it's like no one believed that it was possible that the Giants could have taken this kid out of Duke that soon, but they did. So we all thought it was nonsense and, and and we could still be proven right. So why exactly is Baker Mayfield not allowed to say the same thing? And by the way, I'm not about to defend Baker Mayfield here. It's a colleague of Baker Mayfield's, and it's a rookie at that. We are paid to have opinions. 
Not that he can't have opinions. But truthfully, there is no reason for a guy with all this kind of hype coming off his first NFL season, meaning Mayfield, to even approach negativity around a guy he may never have met. As a matter of fact, Daniel Jones came out today and said, yeah, I've never met Baker Mayfield before. All this guy's trying to do is succeed just like he is. And we could mention, just if we wanted to parse the numbers, and I guess we will, Patrick Mahomes was three games under 500 in college. John Elway was as well. That's just two of many. It was Duke. It was not Oklahoma. Jones was just two under 500. So by Mayfield's criteria, I guess that means he's better than Patrick Mahomes and John Elway. And it says here in this GQ article, Mayfield had to scratch. And basically, it lays this out. But what he had to do was he had to scratch and claw for everything. He was doubted. He had to walk on. He dealt with critics more so than many. He seemingly always had to prove himself to naysayers. So shouldn't he be the first one to applaud the Giants or at least be really behind Jones, giving him a shot? Instead, he takes shots. This is now the second time he's gone after the Giants in a couple of months, the first when he was trying to defend his new wide receiver, Odell Beckham Jr. But now the Daniel Jones stuff, he goes to Instagram this afternoon after this thing becomes a maelstrom. And he tries to walk it back, and he says this, quote, that is not what I said, just so we're clear. I also said I was surprised I got drafted number one, then was talking about the flaws in evaluating quarterbacks, where I brought up winning being important. Reporters and media will do anything to come up with a clickbait story. Heard nothing but good things and wish nothing but the best for Daniel. One of my, a band that I like a lot, Manchester Orchestra. They got a lyric in one of their songs from an album from a few years ago. I don't mean what I say, but I say what I mean to. If it's not what you said, Baker, if that's not what you said, sue GQ, sue Clay Skipper for libel, or talk to an attorney to see if it rises to the level of defamation. Because those are false statements, right? They harm you. They're injurious enough that you had to go after the piece and after the author and after the media, after the fact. So I assume you feel some level of personal affront, right? So I went to the Cornell Law School definition of libel, and it says libel is a method of defamation expressed by print, writing, pictures, signs, effigies, or any communication embodied in physical form that is injurious to a person's reputation, exposes a person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or injures a person in his or her business or profession. You could make arguments that a couple of those would be true if all of this were lies or out of context. Folks, I don't buy any of this. Baker is smart enough. He's a smart guy. He's smart enough to know the media is often a gotcha enterprise. That doesn't mean it always is, but frequently it is, especially if you're prone to say a little more than you should, especially if you go out of your way to pick fights with reporters or pundits who have the temerity to say anything critical of you whatsoever. It really doesn't matter what Colin Cowherd says about you. I know Colin has a wide audience and has, you know, a lot of people listening to him. But who cares? You're Baker Mayfield. It does matter to Baker. This is similar to Kevin Durant. Why does Kevin Durant care what some reporter in the Oklahoman says about him as part of a fan poll like three or four years ago? For Baker, this chip on his shoulder is what he uses at all times, like as some kind of power-up in a video game. The way to get the media to stop talking about the words you say 
is to stop saying so many words. Don't tell me, don't tell us that's not what you said because it falls on deaf ears. These are the same ears, by the way, that are being inundated with tons of your words, with tons of your phrases, with tons of your sentences and paragraphs and soliloquies and novels. You say a lot, my man. How many interviews and exposés has Baker Mayfield done this offseason? The ringer is currently in the middle of a Cleveland Browns week. Mina Kimes did a deep dive into him for ESPN a few months ago. GQ has spoken to Baker. This wasn't the first interview that he's done with them. He has talked to everybody who's asked him to. If you do that, don't be surprised when some of it comes back to bite you. I'm not somebody who's saying, look, cut off the media. I'm not a proponent for that at all. And if this is how Baker Mayfield feels he needs to be in order to thrive, then he can go right ahead. But if you say controversial things and then claim it was taken out of context or you constantly decide you're going to point fingers at journalists when it doesn't come across the way you wanted it to, that's ignorant. And GQ, nothing against them, but they're not exactly known for their hard-hitting sports coverage. Like GQ is not where you go for your sports information. If you're going to talk about sports, maybe don't go to them. The nuance of your Daniel Jones answer could potentially, it might just get lost. Now, the Cleveland president, Odell Beckham Jr. came out and said something earlier today that was kind of foolish as well. He said that the Giants thought that they were sending Odell Beckham Jr. to die by sending him to Cleveland. That the Giants had better offers, but they sent him to Cleveland to kill his career. Think about the sheer, just a myriad of problems with that statement. So are you saying that the Browns suck? Because that was this offseason. They were a 500 team, basically, when Mayfield got into that lineup last year. They had Jarvis Landry. They had Miles Garrett. They had Denzel Ward. They had all of these talented guys. They started winning games. They got rid of Hugh Jackson. And you're saying that the Giants were so stupid that they thought that trading you to a team that was sort of the it team at the time the one that was on the come up, that they were going to kill your career by sending you to Cleveland? So what are you saying? That Cleveland's not good now? Because when you were sent there, they were already on the right path. It's exactly where you should want to go at this point, especially if you're Odell Beckham Jr. and you want people to pay attention to everything you're doing. So this team has decided, this franchise has decided that they are more than just a little bit fine being the heels of the NFL rather than the heroes. And if they win, that's just going to make them like the late 80s Detroit Pistons. That's what I see them as right now. It is really cool. It is super cool. It's rad to be the bad boys as long as you're racking up Ws. But if those L's start to pile on top of each other, then what? Then you're all style, no substance, and you've created a scenario, increasingly created a scenario, where that media that you've deemed your enemy, Baker, is going to have zero sympathy for your struggles. Even if you've got legit reasons for it, they're not going to care. They're going to have a magnifying glass on your every single move because you've got to balance what you say, how you say it, and I would also say when you say it. There are some incredibly smart athletes that have used the media to their advantage. They've been able to manipulate journalists, manipulate the press, because... The dirty little secret about us in the media is, let's face it, 
many of us, if not all of us at times, often think we're wiser and brighter than we actually are. And usually when you think you're the smartest person in the room, you are in the biggest spot to be taken for a ride. Mayfield knows how to be provocative. That much we know. He knows how to move the needle. He's become the shock jock of the NFL. But my question is, does he know how to navigate the waters when they become a storm on this level? My thought today would be definitely not because he's continually defining himself down by engaging in petty nothingness. He's taking shots at college kids that play at OU's rivals. He's talking about Duke Johnson's contract, and now he's going after a rookie quarterback claiming he's being taken wildly out of context when it backfires on him. That correction, that Instagram thing that you put out there, makes me realize this. he recognizes he might have gotten this one wrong. But rather than just say, hey, you know what? I screwed that one up. I really hope Jones plays great except when he plays us. He decided he would pass the buck. Another example this morning, MLB writer and journalist John Heyman, who was pretty controversial and polarizing at times as well, a little bit ornery. He got involved in Antonio Brown's helmet situation without knowing the full story. So he tweeted out something that got him ratioed to death. And if you're unfamiliar with what that means, it means people are not retweeting you or liking you or your stuff. They are replying to you because they think what you've said is dumb and needs to be called out. The replies vastly outnumber anything else from this. Here's what he said. This was a tweet from John Heyman. Let Antonio Brown wear whatever damn helmet he wants. Almost every dead NFL player autopsy he'd had CTE. As long as the helmet he desires is suitably protective, let him wear it. The health of players should be the most pressing issue of the NFL, not their dumb rules of uniformity. Yikes. The whole point of this whole ordeal, John, is that your helmet or AB's helmet has been deemed not suitably protective. So when he got crushed for this, he found one reply, one tweet, suggesting he was joking and that they got it. He quote tweeted that and he thanked that one guy for being smarter than everybody else, including a bunch of journalists, including a bunch of former players that replied with the full story he had not taken enough time to explore before sending out this tweet. Again, pride in the way. All you got to do is say you probably shouldn't have waited in without knowing the background, but instead, hey, I was joking. It's basically the same deal as I was hacked or somebody else handles my account or whatever nonsense that is. If there is a lesson here, and this one is for your kids, if they're in the car, tell them this. It's also for you and it's for me. It's one we had all better learn and take real heed of. It's that we are now accountable for virtually every word we say. Somebody has a phone, somebody's recording, somebody's listening, somebody's watching, somebody is out there just waiting for you to make a mistake. The bigger your sphere of influence, the more you're at risk. There's no excuse, including ignorance, for saying something dumb. The safest thing to do is to live a quiet life, to speak when it's important to you, but never just to hear yourself talk. For example, real quick, before we get to break, and I know we're running a little long here. My wedding is just over a month away. I'm going to blink and it's going to be here. Boggles my mind. During our premarital counseling sessions, the pastor presiding over our ceremony joked with us and he said, nobody has ever left a wedding before and said that was too short. 
Less is more. It's about quality well past quantity. But it does stand to reason, going along with that, that the more you say, the more chances you have to put your foot in your mouth or the more chances you have to be taken out of context, whether it's accidental or on purpose. And so for Baker Mayfield, might be time to pick your battles and maybe stop doing so many interviews. The football season's almost here. It's just a shade over two weeks away. Let your 4-0 record or your 12-4 and record be the answer to all the questions. Or, and this is your other option, Baker, keep doing what you're doing because that's what you like to do. But then don't attack the media for always being willing to let you do that and accept this reality. You are placing a target that is growing exponentially squarely on your team's back. It is super compelling for us in the media and for fans across the football landscape to have a villain. It is super cool to have an antagonist on its face. I like Baker Mayfield, but he's not making his life any easier on the field, much less off it, and it's only going to get worse once the season starts because everybody else in the league, they've been watching this act. We'll see how it goes. We'll be right back. 615-737-1045 to join us, or you can tweet me at jmartzone. Some of you are already doing that. We'll be right back here on 104.5 The Zone. So, Welcome back to the Big Six. Hope your Tuesday's rolling right along. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. 615-737-1045. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate, renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. From Ian Rappaport, Raiders wide receiver Antonio Brown wore a shut vengeance Z10 LTD helmet today in practice per source. It is among the 34 helmets approved for use after the NFL and NFLPA laboratory tests were conducted early this year and sent to players in April. It is in the green grouping of helmets. If you remember, I read off that poster last week, and there were, I don't know, 20 helmets, give or take, in what was deemed the green zone, that being the safest zone. Then there's a yellow zone where there were about seven helmets right around that number that were still okay, but they weren't quite as healthy. And then there was a red list that everything was banned, and Antonio Brown's helmet was on that. This entire thing, I look at it and I'm like, is it finally over? Is this story a wrap and is everything going to be good now? I know Gruden came out and said he's all in after Mayock Sunday said he's either all in or he's all out. Tonight is hard knocks. I have no idea how they're going to handle this whole deal. All I can tell you is something continues to be wrong here. I am not going to add to the speculation more than just to say I can understand why people do point back to Antonio Brown just becoming a different person as a result of head trauma. So I went to, well, I went to Mark Sessler's Twitter, actually, to look at Vontez Burfick's history in the NFL in terms of infractions and punishments. And I um, I have to read this to you. It's not necessarily relevant to anything, but it's just absolutely absurd, all of what he's been done. But he was fined 112 grand in week six last year because of 
the hit on Antonio Brown. And since that point, a lot of people are speculating, are putting out there that even inside the Steelers organization, some of the players said he has not been the same guy ever since he took that hit. I don't know whether or not that's true. But I do remember at one point Antonio Brown being somebody you never heard anything from. All you did was see him play football. And then over the past, now he's become the biggest diva maybe we've ever seen at the position. And that's saying something at that position. I've laid out that case before why I think wide receivers and DBs are the ones that are always on that stage. And so they are constantly jawing, jockeying for position. Their egos grow, and it's one-on-one, less about the team. And so then they get off the field and they start acting like numbskulls. But perfect. I know, so he was fined 112 grand, right? I'm just going to lay this out. I'm going to see how fast I can read this. I'm going to try to go full-on John Machida. If you don't know who I'm talking about, look him up. Used to do the Micro Machines commercials. I know I'm showing my age here, but I am 40 years old, and Micro Machines were kind of the jam back in the day. But this is just the laundry list of infractions that Vontez Perfect has been hit with in his career. By the way, he's also Antonio Brown's teammate now. 2018, violation of PED policy, suspended four games. 2017, hit on defenseless players, suspended three games. 2017, unsportsmanlike conduct, $12,000 fine. 2016, flip middle finger to crowd, $12,000 fine. 2016, leg stomp, $75,000 fine. 2016, multiple violations of player safety rules, suspended three games. 2016, hit on defenseless player, $50,000 fine. 2015, three separate unsportsmanlike incidents, $69,500 fine. 2014, ankle twisting, $25,000 fine. 2013, hit on defenseless player, $21,000 fine. 2013, spearing, $21,000 fine. 2013, striking player in groin, $10,000 fine. You hate to see it. And then 112 for the hits on Antonio Brown as well as James Conner. I don't know what's going on with Antonio Brown, but when he filed the second grievance with the NFL, And Drew Rosenhaus came out and said he's just very serious about this. It's a big-time deal to him. All I could think of was a few good men. Oh, I strenuously object. It's not going to change anything. But it was like he was going to go to practice yesterday. Or actually, I think it was today when he first got there, and he immediately went to the weight room as soon as the helmets were put on. And as I read that, I was just like, did he see helmets and then immediately recognize and remember, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be mad about this, and walk off the field? Something is off. Last week, I compared him to Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor, who also has taken some shots to the head, but I'm not really pointing to that. I'm pointing to my thesis last week, which is when does accumulation begin to bother you? Even if the incidents are small, how many do you have to have before a troubling pattern emerges that can't be denied? If this is the end, and I certainly hope so, I just want to see him play football. Tonight's hard knocks should be centered really almost entirely on him. Well, that and the beating that they gave the Arizona Cardinals and Kyler Murray. But generally speaking, Antonio Brown was the story all weekend. Mayock actually had to say something that that was pretty pointed for a general manager to say about somebody at that point in time. Gruden was asked about it. Everybody on that team was asked about it. It was the story. Last week, they talked about it, but they didn't focus on it. This week, they'd better focus on it. And I'm hoping that the story is actually coming to an end, that he wore this helmet today. 
which Rappaport tweeted out, as did other people at the facility, and that now he should be okay. And so I'm seeing some people say, okay, this is finally over. I'm not so sure because I don't know if Antonio Brown's capable of it being over. If he wakes up tomorrow, he might decide that helmet's not the same one and he can't deal with it. He is Linus at this point, and that is his security blanket. A helmet that's deemed unsafe, just to go ahead and put that back out there for John Heyman to understand before he tweets out something that just was not particularly well thought out. And maybe the whole problem here is, at this point, I just look at it and I say, I wonder if Antonio Brown realizes how cool it would be for other people not to end up like him if indeed there is a problem here. And I'm hoping that there's not. But this whole fiasco, dating back to how he left Pittsburgh, how they benched him in that final game, what must have happened to lead to that that we don't know about, every bit of his antics, it's not a guy crying for help. It's a guy just off the reservation entirely. And so I'm not going to say, yes, this is true about him. I am going to say it's a really good thing that Antonio Brown is being forced to play with a helmet that is deemed safer as it relates to head trauma. Is that fair? We'll be right back. This is a big six on 104.5 The Zone. Zone. Welcome back. Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. On Twitter at jmartzone. Little moon taxi for you. Nashville Zone, one of my favorites. 615-737-1045 is the number. Brian Mudd is the producer. He'll be the voice you talk to if you want to join me. So we love lists in sports radio. We love them in articles as well. Because it gives you some kind of structure when otherwise maybe you wouldn't have it. And especially when you get closer to a season that's not already there, instead of going straight up hot take, sometimes you go list take. And so last week, I guess it was last week, it may have been the end of the week prior, I've been meaning to talk about this for days and just other things have gotten in the way. But SI put out an article listing the top 10 greatest college towns with college football being the primary driver here. And the list is interesting, and it has some on it that I balked at, not necessarily because they're not right, but because they're too big. Clay Travis and I, who, of course, you know, sometimes I, I pop up with on Outkick the Coverage or, or host for him, and you know him well. Um, we argued about this a little bit in that what should make you qualify as a great college football or great college town. And one of the things was size. If it's too big or it's known for a bunch of other stuff, then how is it on the list? A great college town should almost be something that is completely dominated and centralized around a university, a program. And so the list from 10 to 1, if you have not read this or heard it, and I will go through it kind of briefly, and then I'm going to do a big six list of the six biggest omissions, and some of them I think should have been here instead of a few of the ones that are here. Number 10 is Charlottesville, Virginia, which is close to my heart because I went to Scott Stadium. And I went and saw the Cavaliers football team with my dad. And the same thing with basketball, with him and his close friend and his daughter at the time. And grew up there. And it was great. I remember long walks, unless I'm mistaken, having to park a long way away. And unless you took a shuttle, it was a pretty long walk up a hill. But Charlottesville, there is nothing else there except UVA. 
and I love that school. I would have loved to have gone there. My math and science scores would have loved for me to have been good enough to have gone there. Number nine is College Station, Texas. That's home of A&M. He claimed, Clay claimed that this was too big. I don't necessarily agree. I, when I think of College Station, here's, here is my litmus test, or at least a simpler way to look at this. If you name a city, and the, and the first thing that I think of is the university there, especially the football program, I think they can be on this list. Or they can at least be considered for it. So College Station, when I hear that, I immediately think Texas A&M. So I think that they're fine at number nine. They do have George H.W. Bush's presidential library there as well. We get that. Number eight is Knoxville. He says Knoxville's too big. I think Knoxville is okay. I know Knoxville is a big city, but when I think Knoxville, I immediately think of hashtag GBO and hashtag VFL and all of that. I think of the football team. I think of Neyland Stadium. I think of Fulmer. I think of Peyton Manning. I think of all of that. So I think that that one's okay. Seven, Oxford, Mississippi. It's Ole Miss, and then it's nothing else. When I hear Oxford, Mississippi, the only other thing that I think of other than Ole Miss is Oxford University, and that's in England. So I think that that one's safe as well at number seven. Number six is Boulder, Colorado. I don't think of the University of Colorado when I hear Boulder, but I don't necessarily think of anything else either. And so when you look at the descriptions of these top tens, the author of the piece talks about how great the city is. That shouldn't have anything to do with how great the college football town is. It's the fervor. I mean, are the Colorado Buffaloes like that big a deal? I don't know that Boulder should be on this list. Number five is Columbia, Missouri. Okay, I'm fine with that one too. Mizzou is huge, and it's basically the only thing you know Columbia, Missouri for. Four is Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm fine with that one too. I don't know anything else about Ann Arbor other than the University of Michigan. There may be other stuff. I know there are museums. I know there are festivals. They're mentioned here. There are parks and outdoor activities. Again, that has nothing to do with this list to me. I think this list is flawed in its criteria. Number three needs to be taken completely off this list. Number three is Austin, Texas, home of the University of Texas. When I think of Austin, I don't think of the Longhorns. I think of music. I think of culture. I think of a bustling city. I think of Nashville in Texas. Nashville's not on this list. I know that Texas is much better than Vanderbilt from a national perspective, but what in the world does that have to do? And so even the author says sometimes it can feel like a stretch to call Austin a college town. Uh, Right. It's not just a stretch. It's just totally erroneous. Number two is Athens, Georgia. That's a perfect example of a – it could be number one on the list. I mean, yeah, you think of two things about Athens. You think of the University of Georgia and Between the Hedges and UGA and Vince Dooley and that crew, Larry Munson. And then you think of music, drive-by truckers, widespread panic, REM, B-52s, all of them basically came from Athens, Georgia. And not just them, but they are probably the four big-name ones. So Athens could be number one. And then number one is Madison, Wisconsin. You could say it's too big, but when I think of Madison, I do think of the Badgers, and I know it's a really cool place. I don't know that it's number one. So I've got six that did not make this list. Some that should have made it over the schools that did, and a few that really boggle my mind that they are not here. So we will go ahead and take a break. That's what we call a radio tease in the business, kids. And I'll give you those six when we come back. I also, man, I don't know that we have time for me to get to everything I want to. I want to talk about Spider-Man and the news surrounding that today, as well as a new Matrix film. There's a whole lot to get to. Plus, i got to tell you what's coming up on this show and what I'm going to be doing over the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months 
here on this station and otherwise. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it. Luckily, we also have shows the remainder of this week to get to. Telephone number if you want to join us is 615-737-1045 on Twitter at jmardzone. Back in a moment to finish it up here on a Tuesday on 104.5 The Zone. Down. Little Sonic Youth for you. Coming back, final segment on a Tuesday in the Music City. It's the Big Six presented by Renner's Warehouse. Those fine folks are dedicated to helping homeowners benefit from the rental boom by renting their homes the easy way. Renner's Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. Michael Zemuller coming up next. Stick around for that. Fantastic show. Always enjoy my drive home listening to Ned and Mr. Mueller do their thing. So tomorrow on this show, Go ahead and mark this down. We did the list of six best quarterbacks going into this season for the second year. This will be the first year we do this, the big six wide receivers in the NFL. I'm going to list from six to one. Uh, the, the top six targets, I believe, in the league going into this season as well. And then starting the day after, on Thursday, one division a day leading us into the NFL season. If my math is right, I'm out of town next weekend. There's a holiday there's some Titans radio stuff, which is going to be awesome. That's coming up on the docket. I believe from that point on, I'm going to have eight shows before the NFL season begins. So we're going to tackle them. We're going to deep dive into them one division at a time, one show at a time. And we'll finish up, of course, with the AFC South. Also a new podcast feature coming from me. Details really soon to come. I'm super excited about this one. And it's one of the smarter things that I've been involved with. And I might as well just go ahead and say it's a brainchild of my fiance. She's going to make me about a million times smarter just by being in her proximity. She already has, but it's going to be cool. You're going to dig it. Plus, we got the return of the pop six. Really cool stuff in mind for that. And a permanent co-host. I have made an executive decision and it's going to be for the better. So a lot to look forward to if you're a fan of mine. And again, Michael's a Mueller coming up next. I want to do this list of six towns that I think that they omitted from this SI list. And then I want to talk about something that I had not planned to and then just realized, oh, yeah, I should probably comment on this. The top 10 list, college football's greatest college towns by Joan Neeson from back on August the 12th. Number 10, Charlottesville, Virginia. Number nine, College Station, Texas. Number eight, Knoxville, Tennessee. Number seven, Oxford, Mississippi. Number six, Boulder, Colorado. Number five, Columbia, Missouri. Number four, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Number three, Austin, Texas. Number two, Athens, Georgia. Number one, Madison, Wisconsin. You can go ahead and take Austin off there. That's ridiculous. Not because the University of Texas isn't great, but because Austin's known for way too much to be a part of this list. So here are the six, I think, the big six omissions. Baton Rouge, some may say, is too big, but the LSU environment is maybe the best in college football, period, If you, especially if you go there and see LSU at night. But I could see maybe some people on the fence saying Baton Rouge is, is too big. The others, I don't think any of them are too big. I think Morgantown, West Virginia, home of the Mountaineers, only thing I think about is University of West Virginia, and they are nuts up there. I think they deserve to be on this list. I think State College, Pennsylvania, home of Penn State. Again, nothing else you know about that area except for Penn State University, especially the football program. Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I went to NC State. I spent a lot of time in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill is a town that at the time I thought was run by Dean Smith, even though he had moved on by the time I was in college. The whole state knew about UNC at all times. 
The football program, maybe not quite as strong. So if you're just doing it from a college football town's perspective, maybe Keenan Stadium doesn't hit there. But I don't. I think college towns, I think it's hard to separate and just put it into one sport. So I think Chapel Hill belongs. Actually, you know what? I just realized it. But the other two on this list are also from that same conference. Clemson, South Carolina. I lived probably 20 minutes from campus if I was speeding at least, 30 minutes if I was driving the speed limit for over half a decade. And there is nothing else in Clemson and really nothing else in Anderson to speak of other than the Anderson Civic Center, which that's not really to speak of either than Clemson. So I think they belong. And then finally, and I think this might be the biggest omission. I have been there. I have seen this firsthand. I had friends that went to the university. I even thought about going to the university. Virginia Tech, Blacksburg. The scene for Virginia Tech football games with Interstand Man and everything else that surrounded Beamer Ball for such a long period of time, it might not be quite what it was at its height, but it can still get there. They've got a talented coach that has replaced him. But Blacksburg, there is nothing else in Blacksburg at all except Virginia Tech. Like, if you go to gas stations, if you go to grocery stores, it's Virginia Tech modeled. You can get Virginia Tech Cokes and Virginia Tech Pepsis and all of that stuff everywhere. So I think that they they probably belong on the list as well. So I would omit, let's see, what would I omit? You could maybe omit Madison, but I'll leave it on there. I'm omitting Austin because it's way too big. I'm omitting Boulder over the ones I just mentioned just because Maybe I'm just biased because I don't live out there. Maybe it's bigger than I think. So I'd at least take those two off. And I'd try to find a spot for all six of mine, which are Baton Rouge, Morgantown, State College, PA, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Clemson, South Carolina, and Blacksburg, Virginia. Those are my six. And now another list. I told you we love to do lists in radio. Today is National Radio Day. And so Twitter has been... People thanking all of those, especially radio people, obviously, thanking those that have been instrumental in their careers and some fans that have been saying thank you for all the entertainment you've provided and all that. It's been it's been pretty cool. I haven't really done anything except to reply to Jeff Schwartz, who tweeted me about 30, 40 minutes ago, putting me on his list and saying I'm fantastic to work with. And I said back at you. He makes it easy. He really does. He's a great guy. And I feel blessed every chance I get an opportunity to do that. But I have a longer list. And so let's just do that instead of what I had planned. We could talk about Spider-Man and the Matrix tomorrow. We could talk about some of this other stuff that there's just so much going on that I wanted to get to in an hour sometimes just ain't enough. But how am I here? Why am I here? You've heard my story in long form many times. If you've listened to me on various things or read some of the things that I've written, I started this show originally last June laying out my story for about 20 minutes. And I did it again in a little bit of a different way when the Fox Sports Radio National Show began this past March. But I'm not here without a whole lot of other people. You can't do things in this world alone. You may think that you can, but we're not meant to. And so I've been blessed to have a lot of very, very cool, very, very talented, very, very gracious and giving people around me. And they've influenced me to hopefully do the same. And so I don't have this job without Brad Willis, my friend and the program director here on The Zone. And I I wouldn't have had the internship that led me to know who Brad was without Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kaharski at the Midday 180 when I was one of their two original interns back in 2012. 
seven years ago in the fall of there or in the summer rather. And, you know, those three guys are <clears throat> always going to be incredibly special to me for that very reason. That show is always going to be incredibly special to me. I get to fill in. I get the privilege of filling in on the wake up zone with those guys and three HL with those guys. And they've all been nothing but good to me. Midday 180, when I get to fill in, I feel there's almost a little bit more pressure just because of where I came from. But all three of those shows are just fantastic, and not a single one of the members of any of those teams have not been part of my journey and part of my success. So I want to mention them all, but I interned with the 180. I rode with them originally, so I got to throw them out there first. Same time, Chad Young, who is a news talk host in Bowling Green, Kentucky, who also does high school sports up there. Really good dude. And he gave me an opportunity to intern at the same time the Midday 180 did in sports. I was doing sports two days a week and news in Kentucky three days a week simultaneously that summer. Another really good guy, really talented guy. He's been doing it for a long time. And so he bears mention as well. I appreciate him. And then there's Scott Shapiro, the executive vice president of Fox Sports Radio, who gave me the opportunity to work for Clay. And then listened to Clay when Clay said, hey, why don't you let him host when I'm out? And then offered me the opportunity of a lifetime along with Don Martin, the head of Fox Sports Radio, in March when they offered me my own weekly show nationally syndicated on Sunday morning. So I really appreciate them. And then Clay Travis, of course, wrote for OutKick. He paid me well. Then I became his executive producer, and that was something he came to me about. I didn't even know that job was going to be open. And I'm so thankful for everything that he has done. So all of those guys, super important to why I have this opportunity as well. And I appreciate them and their generosity. And I hope that I can reflect that to those that are coming up in this business as well. You can hit me up at Jmart Zone if you need advice when it comes to the careers. Because I've been around people that have given me wonderful advice this whole time and have been nothing but supportive. I could not do less than the same for any of you out there, any of you young hopefuls or anything, anything I can do to support you, I will. That's what they did for me. Michael Zemuller coming up next. Stick with us. I'll talk with you tomorrow night. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night.